Hello and welcome back to Spotlight, the podcast where we analyse Star Trek from a non-Trekkie perspective. With me, Liam. Uh, me, Matt. And me, Paul. Uh, who is now a converted Trekkie, actually, so he's betrayed us all and uh, become full Trekkie, while me and Matt are still yeah. to be convinced. Uh, <laughs> but we've done all of the movies now. We finished them off um, the other month, and then we ranked them. Uh, we took a look at Star Trek Discovery, which is the new series of Trek. Um it would be perfect for us as kind of you know non-trekkies coming into this we've been watching Star Trek Discovery week to week uh, as our first ever series of Star Trek we've actually watched on the regular yeah certainly for me um, and so it's perfect for us about to go in to the television series on our show and actually go back to where it all started for Star Trek with Star Trek the original series the idea for these TV episodes that we're going to do over the next couple of months is we're going to get a guest on for each episode um, who's more au fait with the show that we're going to be talking about than we are uh, to actually give us a guest pick so an episode that they would recommend for us to watch uh, to kind of get us into the show and convince us perhaps this show is, is worth watching for multiple seasons we're also going to watch the original pilot of each series uh, of course in the case of Star Trek the original series that we're doing today there's actually two pilots The Cage uh, which was unaired at the time it came out but has since become known as the official pilot and Where No Man Has Gone Before which was screened out of order when it was originally shown on TV but was shot as the first episode with Captain Kirk in the lead William Shatner as it was Captain Pike in the cage so those are the episodes we're going to talk about today I'm not going to reveal Dave's guest pick just yet we'll leave that until later in the show and he can introduce it um we've had David Trumbull on the show before uh you might remember him from our first supplemental episode the uh, morality of Trek uh but he's back again today and he's beaming in all the way from Austin Texas Dave why don't you introduce yourself and tell us why you're in Austin Texas of all places yeah is there anything you want to go over first or are we just going to just launch yeah. right into it I'm literally might jump out for a couple of seconds to check the oven uh, I'm like the Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> podcast I'm cooking for everybody anyway. <laughs> uh, it's great to be uh, doing another episode with you guys uh, I've listened to every single one of them except Discovery because I still haven't caught the first two episodes because I'm, I'm too rubbish to download whatever the thing is that <laughs> oh you've not seen Discovery yet I've not seen Discovery yet, no, um, but uh, there is a reason why I haven't had time to watch Discovery, <laughs> which is that I've been binging um, all 80 hours or so of the original series in order to to be okay enough for, for this episode. <laughs> this um, is a massive rewatch, though, right? You, you've seen yeah. these before at some point. Yeah, because at first I was so just, like, overjoyed that you... Uh, uh, asked me to do the original series because the show is called Spotlight and because you've been doing the the Kirk and Spock movies, you know, the trinity of, of Spock, Kirk and McCoy. I felt like, oh, it's great. I get to be the guy who talks about the episodes with, with Shatner and McCoy and DeForest Kelly. Uh, and then I realized, oh, wait, it's been eons since I really viewed 
the original series in its entirety and I've always watched it sort of out of order and in pieces. So I thought, oh, well, it's on Netflix. I can just binge it. It's only three seasons. And then it's only after you get like halfway through season two, you're like, oh, my God, it's like 80 hours of television. <laughs> I've got a job and all this other stuff. <laughs> this is your job now. Dave. <laughs> Thankfully, as you say, I am in Austin, Texas. And so aside from, you know, doing what I'm doing here, my, my work, I've you know, I've got free time and, and less distractions, you know, because I'm in a new place. So it was actually a really fun thing to do. And by the, like, you know, a couple episodes in, I was pretty hooked. And so uh, uh, it, it, it's been a real a, a real pleasure. I've been the same thing, like, watching these for the, from the beginning for the first time. And uh, I thought I was making some good headway. I got, I got to, like, episode 21 in about two weeks. And then, yeah. then Liam comes along and says, you've almost finished it. And you've started, like, a week ago. I was like, what the? <laughs> <laughs> but I was doing so well. But it's a shame. <laughs> no, I, I love that you've been um, uh, watching the original series, Paul, because it means that you'll, you you might know what I'm talking about um, uh, in in a couple of the things that I'm going to discuss. Just to just to uh, give some background as to why I'm in Austin, Texas. So last time I was on this uh, on the podcast, you guys. Um, uh, asked me what I was doing, and I said that I was a political cartoonist, uh, illustrator, write, write children's books, but that I was also looking for work in the animation industry. And uh, now I can happily say that I'm working in the animation industry on uh, an animated feature um, with Robert Rodriguez uh, at Troublemaker Studios in Austin. Uh, and that's what I've been doing, along with a couple other uh, animated movie projects that I can't talk about. <laughs> Great stuff yeah. that you uh, can't talk about. It. <laughs> oh, can you talk about the main project that you're doing at all? I can tell you what it is, okay. um, but uh, but not anything else about it. Um, it's 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 based upon a, a line of plush dolls called Ugly Dolls, which oh, yeah. uh, were quite big in America and huge in uh, in China. And this is an American China co-production with STX and Alibaba. So um, Roberts. Uh, he was he was announced as a director like a, about a year ago, and I've been working on it since January. So it, it, it's been a crazy experience, and uh, uh, I've spent about a month and a half here, um, uh, at, literally with an office next to Roberts in Troublemaker Studios because no one's using the studio for anything right now. So there are loads of free offices, and they were like, "Which one do you want?" I was like, oh, "I think I'll go for that one." <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, have you got have you got the run of the place? Then is it pretty early days still? I've got the run of the place um, because we're still working on the story. I mean, the best thing about animated movies is that they they dedicate a lot of time to. Um, to uh, the story process. Mm. This is a, a faster production than most, but at the same time, um, I'm the first story artist to actually be um, in Austin. And so I've had a lot of FaceTime with Robert and actually the opportunity to to, to brainstorm one-on-one -on -one with him a couple of times, which was a, a great experience. Is, is story artist a great kind of middle ground between using, you know, you straight up artistic skills and storytelling and writing and things? Is it a combination of the both? Because as you say, animation is all about kind of finding the story through the image and through groups and all sorts. Yeah, that, uh, that's actually a great question because um, one of the biggest distinctions that I make when I describe what I do is that uh, it's called story artist, not storyboard artist. Mm -hmm. So a storyboard artist, you know, storyboards can be used in commercials and films and, and you can hire a bunch of guys to do uh, beats uh, in the story or or shots that you've already rigidly figured out to match a script, a pre-existing screenplay. Whereas uh, in, in animation, um, the, the story is only ever first written as a treatment 
and then that treatment is taken and broken down into beats, which story artists draw, and uh, then after that they get fleshed out into sequences, and then only then is a writer brought on to help pull it all together. But it's, it's definitely a cross-pollination between the director, the producer, the writer, and then a team of about five or six uh, story artists who just like panel beat the thing into shape, you know, uh, uh, by by making these really really rudimentary versions of of of, of the sequence. It's not animation, but it's it, it's virtually that. It's just the most roughest form of viewing the sequence, uh, you know, and and we just fail as many times as we need to until the story is right. And that's why a lot of animated movies tend to have really superior screenplays to live action. And that's why I wanted the job. I realized basically after working in, um, uh, as a film student going to film school and then also working as an illustrator and, and an artist, just realizing, Oh, well, this is the magic middle ground between the two things I love doing. This is like my dream job. I just didn't realize that it was something I could go for. And that's what I've been doing. That's fantastic. Is it going to, like, when it gets further down the line and maybe there's a script, will it kind of revert back to more of the storyboard artist thing? Will it be kind of breaking down? It goes back and forth between the two until it ends up being animated? Yeah, we're very privileged, actually, like, it, it, uh, to, to, to work on the story right at the beginning of the story process. And then also we're the last people who work on it before it gets turned into actual shots because we have to then make the sequences after we've figured everything out. Mm -hmm. So, so we're there from the beginning, middle and end. And, uh, mostly it's just about, um, we go through at least three passes. Usually, uh, we, we make the entire movie in, uh, in a first pass, we watch it, we dissect it and, and, you know, producers hand down notes and the director has notes and everybody says, okay, this is what was wrong with it, but we like this, this, and this. And so we save that. Then we go away, do a second pass and then we do a third pass. And so it's like tempering it like steel. It's, it's a really fascinating process and you know, it's, it's, it's not a perfect one. You know, it's designed for you to make mistakes and to, to like one of the biggest problems, you know, I think happens with a lot of big movies and especially like mainstream tentpole movies these days is that, uh, they haven't put enough time or thought into the story or the script and and it comes out on the finished product and it's too late to do anything about it like all the reshoots in the world can't necessarily salvage something if it hasn't got a good foundation underneath absolutely yeah so there's nothing rushed about this process <laughs> <laughs> well well this process is uh, a faster production than than say a pixar or a dreamworks one this is right. um, th this has been a bit of a seat of your pants kind of production because, but that's what robert rodriguez is known for like he doesn't he, he he's very fast as a shooter and a filmmaker he doesn't like to waste time but that is that that's also a wonderful thing for me because as you know talking to someone you know who's wanting to get into this industry for, for a first job, you know, I, probably a trial by fire is the best way to go, you know? Like, I, I, I get to get my first job under my belt really, really quickly, and I get to experience all the challenges of, like, you've got to do this quickly, you've got to make, you know, big decisions, and, you you know, you, you essentially can't slouch in any way. So it's, it's, a, it's a gift, weirdly. Yeah. Dave, before you went out to Austin, though, you went out to L.A., didn't you? Uh, yeah. To do some stuff out there. Like, I... Just yeah, what, what were you what were you doing out there? How how was that? Because that must have been quite a different kind of experience. Yeah, it was. Well, it, it, um, out there was um, it, it was the same film. It was the same project um, because the majority of the other story artists are in LA because the 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 majority of uh, animation takes place in California in America. So um, they were going through a, a revision of the script and they said we want all hands on deck. So before you go to Austin, catch a plane, you know, to 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 Burbank and 
I basically was uh, was put up in a hotel room where all the pictures on the walls were pictures of movie reels and stuff, like just in case you didn't know you were in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and and then and then every day you, you would just go to the Gary Marshall Theater, which is like where Gary Marshall's film offices were. So you see all these pretty woman posters everywhere, and you just walk into a room, and uh, it's a bunch of story guys eating donuts and coffee, and and you're just bashing the story against the wall for five days. And that's what we did to try to come up with, uh, we wanted a slightly different direction and, um, and uh, you know, it, it, talk about a trial by fire. It was just amazing to be in a room full of incredibly creative people and they're all trying to do the same thing, but they're all bringing their own talents. And there are some incredibly funny uh, story artists on the production and, you know, it's uh, it's a great group to be a part of and, and really cool. And, and I got to walk around Warner Brothers' back lot, which was pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> How many Spy Kids posters in your office, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Not just enough. for that, you laugh, but I, I'm in the office filled with Sin City posters. Oh, you know, the, good one. <laughs> the one above my uh, head is actually signed by Rosario Dawson, which is awesome. And... Oh. Um, and there are Spy Kids, the Spy Kids costumes are literally in the, like, you walk through uh, this gigantic room with all of these amazing, like, I mean, read about it. Troublemaker Studios is, like, filled with all of the Rodriguez sort of memorabilia. And, like, on the wall is this gigantic table-sized, I mean, it's even bigger than a table. It's like a bed-sized map painting from the end of From Dust Till Dawn, you know, just, like, on the wall. Yeah. So cool. And um, but, but oddly enough, the thing that I was most excited about was walking into the Sin City green screen stage just because uh, even, though, <laughs> even though it's just green, I thought it was it, like, because Sin City came out when we were uh, in college, uh, yeah, like in, you know, in uni, there was something really amazing about just walking onto an empty stage but being like, this is where it happened. This is where it you know, all it, happened. <laughs> this is where it all happened. But then um, there's a funny little postscript to that, which is the, um, the uh, Robert's like uh, production assistant Nixon said, "Hey, is there anything we can help you with in your office or whatever to get settled?" And I said, "Well, actually, um, I usually put my feet up on something when I'm working on tablet. When I'm when I'm drawing, it just helps my you know be feel more comfortable." And so he said, "Okay, well, we can get you one of the Apple boxes from from the soundstage. And an Apple box is just a crate that." actors stand on when they need to look taller or whatever a cameraman stands on you know they're basically just you know all purpose boxes box. <laughs> <laughs> you're like I, I don't know if you know these Hollywood terms this is industry lingo guys you gotta you gotta get with it I don't know if they're so au fait but no um, yeah uh, they brought me an apple box from the Sin City stage and it's painted green um and so every day when I work, I get to put my feet up on a piece of Sin City. And that's <laughs> like, despite all these amazing costumes and, and you know, uh, the, the, the electric chair from Sin City is just there and like all these amazing like weapons and, and fake guns and machetes and all this kind of like loads of cool motorcycles and cars on the back lot and stuff. But, but my favorite thing is the fact that I get to put my feet up on, on a piece of Sin City. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should get into it then um, in regards to the actual episodes we're going to be talking about today. So we should start where it all began, the unaired pilot that was The Cage. I'm going to uh, like uh, confess, I saw The Cage, but as in the end of two-parter, like recut into the two-parter like, later on in the series. Oh, what was this? I don't know. Well, it does come out so basically, the cage oh. does appear like in the show itself. Like, oh, right. like it's sort of re 
constituted re, re sort of worked mm. to be like flashbacks. Does right. it make sense? And for the mo- it's a lot of it goes into the into this two part. Oh um, right, yeah. So I so you there's yeah. the menagerie part one and two. That's right, yeah. And it's wow. so there's so much of it used. They credit the original Cage director on the part one, and then use a kind of for all the reshoots with the new cast. Um, in part two, like and part one, but like they credit that director in the second half of the episode. So right, yeah, I kind of, I kind of thought like I couldn't visit because I just did that two parter as what as part of my rewatch or first watch actually in a lot of cases. Right, so, right, right. Yeah, but it's I, I feel like I know enough. You want to get mm. go right? Ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I mean, because this is the thing: the cage was made as uh, the original pilot. And then they yeah. scrapped it, obviously made another pilot with uh, William Shatner in the lead as Captain Kirk, and kind of, you know, restarted completely. Um, and then it wasn't until I think it was the 80s uh, where they actually screened the proper full pilot of The Cage. And like you say, because they'd incorporated it into the series later on, it became a proper part of the law. Now, if you go any any kind of episode guide or on Netflix or whatever, the cage is always there as the first episode. Um, so it's now become that thing of you know Captain Pike has proper passed in to Star Trek lore um, as being very important part of that. He was mentioned in Discovery recently. Mm. Yeah, um, and the new movies, and yeah. he's in the JJ movies. So is, obviously, is Pike only in the original series in that episode? Is no. Not anything mm. no, he comes back, doesn't okay. he? You said. Well, yeah. say they kind of bring him back in the two parter but, but a like, different actor uh, a different actor because he's under loads of makeup and in a wheelchair okay right yes. <laughs> right right okay oh so that's where the classic pike in a wheelchair it's classic from. crispin garber didn't want to come back uh <laughs> you know we didn't pay so they put him in a wheelchair oh we're out on the golf course it's <laughs> the thing like uh, unaired pilots you know are you know something that happens quite a lot um, throughout kind of TV history you never normally get to see them but not only that but it's not often that it's a complete recast mm. kind of thing like you know all that that's rare at least uh, yes that's right everything but Spock um, yes yeah, yeah, Spock's yeah. not very Spock like in this no no no, no as we'll discuss I even think he does oh, like, yeah. smile a couple of times isn't he like, yeah he does <laughs> yeah, yeah. this There's one of the things with uh, some blue flowers where, where he just looks like a child uh, playing with these weird blue flowers that sort of make a weird reverberating singing noise. It's very unspot like. <laughs> well, it's just, yeah, Nimoy's performance just seems so different from anything else in the cage. I mean, I almost started referring to him as Jock Spock in terms of like <laughs> he seems like Spot the College Years. <laughs> It's the same as like uh, the performances of Homer in Set Simpson season one, which is just so off. Like, uh, isn't it? It's a different one. Oh, bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah is that guy? He hasn't, bar. hasn't yeah. quite found the character yet. Did you find that too, Dave? Yeah, um, that's one of the first things that that hit me, which is that Spock in the pilot, uh, the, the cage, he exhibits pretty much none of the qualities that make him spark yes. i mean they they don't even make any reference to him being half human they don't make any me- reference to logic this is clearly a first draft pass of this character and um roddenberry wanted to work with nimoy because i think they'd worked together before so so you know obviously he thought he was a great actor because he spock is the only character to mm-hmm. carry on uh, through into the kirk version of the show but you know you can tell that this is definitely before they've been able to fill in a lot of you know the essential lore uh, that makes Spock such a classic character. He is basically just Spock in everything, uh, in nothing but name, really. 
Yeah, yeah, no, great. My, um, I think my first thought seeing Nimoy when he showed up was, is he from the Tommy Lee Jones school of being an always old? Like, this is <laughs> the mid-60s and he still looks like he's pushing 50. So, I don't know how he did it. Um, but, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we've got Captain Pike here, um, who's a completely different character from mm. Captain Kirk. I mean, that seems like a deliberate thing, because he seems so much more harder-edged and kind of flinty than Kirk does. Um, yeah, and I think that it's got to be a deliberate change and that they wanted to go away from that. No problems with slavery, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what? No, no problems with extreme sexism or anything. But then again, yeah. Kirk didn't even. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, kept that, they kept that character <laughs> shape, that was fine. Um, but yeah, everything's a bit different here, isn't it? It's like the whole series, like the the costumes, the kind They're of just kind of the bit characters. more bland set, bland yeah. coloured jumpers. No one, they haven't got the like start the original series, the motion picture. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you know, it's not the it's not the same title <laughs> sequence or anything like that. Uh, okay. it's it is different it, music, right? Yes, yeah, different music. Slightly. I really wanted to hear the track theme with like the lyrics that Rodney wrote for it. Uh, this has what? been referenced a few times on other podcasts. See uh, uh, Frasier, like the fr- what's it called? Talk the, salad. Talk salad. Scrambled eggs. Where they talk about it on there, uh, but um, yeah, it was where Rodney realised that if you have the theme s- song, you get paid every time it gets played. So he wrote, "There's lyrics to the Star Trek theme, but you don't never hear them." I wanted that to be at least heard in that version. Yeah, it's not even not even in the cage. Yeah, they could have at least at least put those in there. But like the the only one character that is like rather progressive that it doesn't make it through to the final iteration of Star Trek was the character number one, um, Major Barrett. And I think this is a a one big loss. I think at least that you you have somebody that that rank who Pike is more than happy to like leave the ship to, and like it, it was really progressive at the time to have that. Like, you know, yeah, woman at that Although point. it's not quite so progressive that yeah. she's name. <laughs> she's literally yeah. just number one in the story and the script. She has no name, which just we'll uh, it so it's a one step forward, maybe half a step back. <laughs> well, well, this is the thing. I literally just went and looked on the IMDb because I just had her as like number one in my notes and thought, oh, she must have a name. Looked on the IMDb part, <laughs> IMDb <laughs> cast. No, no name, just number one. And like you say, I mean, it is progressive to have her as number one, but yeah. Pike certainly doesn't agree, which is, when's the original series set? 23rd century? 23rd century. Yeah. 21st century, right? So one of the first things he says to her is, I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. And he's like, no offence, Lieutenant, you're different, of course. <laughs> like, you know, because he's referring to a younger girl who also works, who comes in on the bridge, and he's like, get off the fucking bridge! Go make some fucking tea! Yeah, doesn't he move her and go, like, out of the chair, over yeah. there, out the door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when Which... they, he does leave the ship with her, but I kind of... It came across the way they played it on the show, as in, you guard the base, <laughs> we'll leave you yeah. behind, you're not going to come down with us. It's like, sorry, uh, you're the oh, most I... experienced officer, we'll have to leave you here. Oh, I know, it was less yeah, like, you know, well, this would be no place for a woman. Like, uh, it was more like, you know, you're the second in command. I don't know, I didn't get as much as did from her book. You are right, but at the same time, I do really feel for her throughout the episode, because she has what I'm sure is the majority of, of competent women's experience, which is that she's left in charge to 
be ma- relentlessly mansplained to all the way through the episode. <laughs> I, I, and I'm back on the Enterprise, telling her what's going on, and she's just there with a level head, constantly doing the right thing, whilst they're all, you know, uh, trying to tell her how to do her job. <laughs> and and then the other thing that you mentioned, uh, which I th- think is interesting to unpack, is the secretary-style uh, officer that Pike is... Yeah, systemically patriarchal towards um, uh, is is a type of crewman that doesn't show up in the next generation or beyond uh, called a yeoman. Uh, and I, I was like, what's a yeoman? Um, because they keep mentioning different crewmen uh, uh, throughout the original series called yeoman, and they're always women. Thing? And, and and the yeoman are women. They're basically always attractive secretarial style personal assistants hmm. to the men, and that is obviously a vestige of the the 1960s madman style society that uh that roddenberry lived in and mm. and so it's like yeah it, it is a very progressive show and 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 yes it is great that number one is put in charge of the bridge and i also think that she does the right thing towards the end as well she really you know steps up but there's something very sort of like Suffice it to say, the Me Too hashtag is still getting a lot of traction in the 23rd century uh, <laughs> Yeah, this is exactly what I'm pointing out because I think the problem is it now dates itself, not through its production value, but through mm. the fact that Pike is saying, um, you know, I can't get used to a woman on the bridge. And you're like, it's, it's the 21st century, mate. You, you try to tell me that still, even now, women like having this role of authority is like, unheard of. It makes it seem like Pike has literally time traveled from the 1960s <laughs> into the 23rd century. It's like the Gene Hunt of like Star Trek or something like that. It's, it's really, really odd. And then obviously, you know, again, it's not that good for the women later where it's revealed they all desperately want to fuck Pike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's essentially it's just assumed that you're either um, a, a precocious sexually naive underclassman or you are a uh, a sort of a brittle distant very professional competent woman who secretly still wants the same thing and obviously all of their storylines are tailored to be you know important to the man and this is before we even meet vita on the planet oh, yeah. who essentially is the the ultimate interstellar battered abused housewife you know desperately trying to throw herself at a man yeah, Just because in the middle of, of all like, these old white men, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it's that thing of the number one is having fantasies about Pike. The yeah. the human um, is we're told has unusually strong female drives. <laughs> unusually <laughs> fucking sex addict or something. And then, like you say, you've got Vina as well, who's like slave girl. Like, yeah, it's not looking that good. Uh, like her, her worst line is when the other two women are beamed down while she's trying to seduce Pike, and she goes, "No, let me finish." <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> oh man! But at the same time, you do feel like they are trying. That's the funny thing about this They're pilot. Like, like they are, they are making baby steps towards a more progressive society. Mm. But there's only so much you can imagine based upon where you come from. And so, so I kind of give uh, it a, a pass for the most part. It did start to really irritate me after I binged the whole show because if you watch it all in one go, it's kind of a relentless onslaught of, of sexism. It obviously only gets worse when Kirk becomes captain because <laughs> even though even though he's not like really allowed to fraternize with members of his crew and they kind of keep to that, which is uh, you know something. 
he constantly laments the fact that he can't fraternize with them. Like, you know, you don't know what it's like to to want love and to not be able to like, you know, and then you're like, well, basically what you're saying is that you're feeling bad that you can't abuse your power, you know, of your position. It's, it, and, and it just sort of, it, it all piles up after a while. There's even like, you know, more subtle moments of, of, of ignorance where like, uh, there's a character who might fall in love with Scotty in one episode, I think. And, and, and Kirk, says, you know, oh, I'm very happy for Scotty, but it would be a shame to have to lose an officer, you know, a great officer. Which basically means that, like, oh, it means that she's going to marry Scotty and she's not going to have her job or career anymore. <laughs> you know, she's, she'll be in one of the ready rooms, you know, fixing the tea for Scotty, you know? It, it just feels a bit like, okay, they can't really conceive of, a, of, of the future in the same way they can conceive of yeah, warp. Warp drive and and the cells and things. Even when you can synthesize food at the touch of a button, she still needs to lose her career. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> somebody's got to push that button. <laughs> it's not going to be the engineer. <laughs> but yeah, one thing I found odd with the cage, and I think must be one of the reasons it, it kind of wasn't usable as a pilot, is they kind of seem to be setting themselves up for the fall in terms of being an ongoing show because at the beginning of this episode Pike is already absolutely knackered he's considering yeah. resigning he's kind of bored of what he's doing out in deep yeah. space there he's getting on the he's getting on the booze of the doctor yeah, like you know, straight away exactly and you you're kind of thinking <clears throat> this guy seems really tired of life there, there doesn't seem to be any yeah. joy of voyaging into discovery with, with Pike I think that the biggest problem with Jeffrey Hunter's Captain Pike, and, and, and he does a good performance for what the script mm. requires of him, is that he is joyless, as you say. It, 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 you basically leave the episode begging for a Captain Kirk. Yeah. And, I mean, like, we'll talk about it w- w- when we get to uh, uh, When No Man's Gone Before, but, like, the first scene you see with Kirk, he instantly pulls out that secret weapon, which is his, his, the, the flash of this... Cheshire Cat grin, you know. He he just genuinely delights in 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 being in space, and he he jokes with people. He he deals in uh, in innuendo, and you know he subtly ball breaks Spock and the rest of the crew. He's got like this sort of cat that got the cream twinkle to him, and and so yeah, there's no way that wasn't a direct addressing of the note of Captain Pike's sort of seriousness. I mean. We talk about sexism, but when Pike is uh, captive and they're trying to essentially put him in a room with another panda, you know, with the with the character of Vita, <laughs> oh, yeah. what's about him is that is that is that he proves once and for all that he is no Kirk because he just shows no interest in her whatsoever and refuses all of her advances. Mm, you know, he's just like half the episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. He basically exhibits total disinterest uh, because you know, I mean, the thing that Kirk really should do in all of his episodes, which is like actually that's not important. What's important is the the issue at hand. But uh, but it's kind of funny because there's even a sequence where. Where they've got him in the cage and they're explaining exposition about the girl, and he still doesn't want to hear about her. He's like, oh, "All right, let's talk about the girl." You know what I mean? Like that's, that's how uncurt he is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you said earlier about the girl living with the scientists, everything like that. Is like when he first turns up, it kind of seems like they're setting him up 
to try and get this girl because that's their whole goal isn't it basically try and get Pike to sleep with this girl basically and going like <laughs> she's lived her whole life with a bunch of ageing scientists going you know they're saying like, oh, gee, what she needs really Pike is a good fucking come on <laughs> <laughs> there's a real perfect syndrome going on on that planet for sure and yeah, uh, I mean it's it's just a bit of an odd way to start a series, yeah. isn't it? This episode of it's mostly fantasy I found, sequences. I found and stuff. the whole thing really kind of dark, kind of trippy. Like I read about trippy, it being, um, yeah. you know, being kind of one of the reasons it failed for it being too cerebral and too slow and intellectual. Mm. I can see all that, and it really does feel like it would be a great random mid-season episode or even a finale not the one to start with because yeah. there's a lot of heavy stuff in there oh it makes it infinitely more exciting by cutting it into uh, right. two-parter I like, really you know, think so story. yeah because it just gives it more stakes in terms of like and a bit more of kind of context if the because the planet in the subsequent sort of year or so or ten years since that uh, the, that those events took place it's become like the one place you can't go in the universe that, on the penalty of death Right. And um, so that's it kind of makes it even more dangerous and, and mysterious, this planet. And whilst you're, v- you're reviewing this footage, yeah, I think it really works better in the menagerie than it does on its own. Yeah. Well, yeah. and uh, is it everything with the costumes, the props, the kind of sets, everything is a little bit less sophisticated and less slick in the cage. So yeah. it would totally work as flashbacks. Yeah, it mm. makes sense because it almost feels like that would be the Federation 10 years before. But the difference <laughs> is, like, yes, you know, things yeah. are slightly off. You know, things have progressed. Yeah, and, and, and at the same time, I think what you guys touched upon is absolutely correct, which is that, that it doesn't feel like the pilot episode to a series with the character that you're going to stay with. It feels like, almost feels like, in a weird way, like his Dark Knight Rises. Like, it feels like a, a, a very conclusive ending to his story of coming out of war and feeling tired and miserable. And then in the menagerie two-parter, what they effectively do is that there is like a a really compelling side plot of Spock uh, seemingly betraying the Federation in in order to help Pike, which is great because you get to see like the drama of Kirk wondering if he's going to have to court-martial his best friend and stuff. And so there's some great stakes there, but essentially all of the cage elements of the menagerie to Parter are just reruns of that episode but then with the ending tacked on at the end where they give pike a conclusion because that, that, that that's the thing that happens in this episode is that they kind of take you all the way to the last moment of where pike's story should end and then they leave it and uh and so it feels like writing a wrong in a weird way like they get to recycle their their material and their unused pilot but at the same time it's more satisfying to finally see pike uh, have a happy ending. Absolutely, really. yeah. I also, I also love that uh, they did. One of my big bugbears is like the impossible camera angles on like you know old uh, playback. But they just yeah. All oh, these pictures are being beamed from Rigel Seven, <laughs> and they are being edited for our viewing pleasure. <laughs> like, you know, so <laughs> well, that's how it works. <laughs> too far. About those guys with the big heads, they know how to cut, man. Yeah. They know where. They've done this isn't their first pilot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those aliens are cool as well. I mean, I, I do think they're really iconic looking. Uh, what, what are they called? The aliens in this? Delorians? Yeah, they are really, uh, they are really iconic looking. I can see why they would want to use that footage um, again. Well, I, I think probably more than likely it was just they had to justify spending yeah. the money on that. Well, on pilot, like the, I guess, the, the, at the time, the, the vibrating brain. Is yeah, the, yes. look, the look of yes. a giant pulsating brain is something that's been spoofed so much, especially in cartoons and things since. It's a classic kind of. Want to have a super smart alien, giant brain, and a vein just bobbing away. There you go. <laughs> mm. And I, 
Ironically, Roddenberry originally wrote those aliens as sort of crab-like creatures, like giant crabs. Huh. Um, and and Roddenberry was like, actually, no, we're not going to do that because one of the things the studio was trying to avoid was sort of B-movie horror monsters. Mm-hmm. And Roddenberry was like, this is going to be a cerebral, important show. So, you know, those those aliens might look a little silly now, but that was him being like, we're going to go serious. This is him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I'd say, let's move on to like where the No Man's Gone before, because actually I think this actually does the horror of a, a sci-fi story um, really well with like without having to kind of resort to massive like m- makeup and fake effects that kind of stuff it does it all with a performance of a, of a man who's been changed mm. and and what and slowly realizing what he's going to become and everybody else being shit scared of that possibility um, mm. so the where no man has gone before the actual film pilot mm. uh, for the, for star trek as we know it now uh, concerns like an incident where one of the crew members um, receives a godlike powers, which are, you know his his IQ is mm-hmm. steadily increasing throughout the episode. He well, he's and he also has these amazing eyes. I think the eyes make yeah. it like I I really love this episode, and I can see like Red Dwarf. Is this what came to mind the quarantine episode because it does that sequence where <laughs> you see him moving stuff with his mind, and it cross fades in the shots of his eyes moving about. That's Red Dwarf's trailer. I just wanted to say before we get on to where uh, No Man has gone before because. The fact that the cage was an unaired pilot, just to kind of sum that up a little bit, just want to say like, so if we saw, do we agree as to them scrapping that and going right, let's start again? Oh yeah, because there's or no do one you else think in the crew. That that... If you'd watch that on its own, that you would have gone like, oh, I want to see more of the adventures of Pike. Do you think that's a missed opportunity? Or? Well, I mean, what you get in the actual series is you get your Kirk, Spock, Sulu, mm-hmm. or you get all these characters. In that, there's only. You know, Spock's in all over, and no one else is really memorable apart from number one, who's that missed opportunity, like you say. Or I guess apart from Pike, but that almost seems because he's become this mysterious bit of Star Trek lore, because he's kind of the captain that never was, isn't he? It's kind of just a really interesting curio now, isn't it, to view? Uh, Rather than being something where you're going like, oh, I want a whole series of Pike Mm. and his crew. Without this show, without this pilot, you couldn't get to the show that we love. That is one thing that, that, that I, I do love about it. I mean, you can't watch that first. That f- the, the opening bars of music when, when you, you, know, you open up on space at the beginning of that pilot, even though it's not the same crew, and it's not even a racially diverse crew at all um, right. in that first pilot. I mean, in fact, like the, the most diversity they have is the, the character I like to call Space Tintin, who basically is just... Uh. Uh, a, a guy who just looks exactly like Tintin, uh, who's like one of the security officers. But um, but yeah, like um, you watch it, and it's not the show you love. It doesn't have the characters you love in it, but it has so many of the ingredients, and you're just you're waiting for it to find itself. And you you know, just like working as a story artist, you know, having to refine a story over and over and over again. Usually, you have to uh, uh, sort of go the wrong way to come back. But there's so much in there that that they keep. And and you, you could argue that you wouldn't end up with the show that we love without taking this little detour. Yeah, exactly. Um, so before we get feeling too caged by the cage, as you say, let's move on to where No Man Has Gone Before. Um, this is the pilot for the actual show uh, with Kirk and Spock and all the characters Cove we love. Although no check, this one is well, no Chekhov. I, I had no idea that Chekhov didn't turn up until season two. No idea whatsoever. And I had no idea that. I mean, this must have been really weird for viewers 
um, watching this back in the 60s where they screened it out of order and showed yeah. this one as like the third or fourth episode because you've got no Ahura, no McCoy, mm-hmm. and the costumes are still slightly different. And this, still, it's, it looks... It, it yeah, must but, have been but, so odd slotted no, in. Well, I don't know, because like, if you start watching this week by week, people come and go. Like, It doesn't really settle down into like the, the main characters. You know, There are episodes where Spot, Scotty doesn't turn up at all, right? where Sulu isn't there. Or, you know, it's not that everybody's a given every episode. So right. it actually still works in the run of it. It's very purely But it even looks slightly different in terms of the costumes, oh, yeah, the costumes that di- look different to like, the rest of the but series. But there are occasions where Kirk wears that green... Like, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. Like you know, where he's—it's usually when he's being court martial. But occasionally, <laughs> just like where's my court martial shirt? Like just around, just for shits and giggles. Um, but you know, I—I I feel like initially we get that uh, new Spock straight away, don't we? Already, yes. he's, he's yeah, not yeah. quite there. But that he's first way exchange more is like uh, that's way. logical, and yeah, 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 yeah. yeah for yeah, me, coming yeah. in, it's like what Dave said about Shatner having a great face and a great, you know, Cheshire grin face. Like, and it's weird for me to essentially be seeing Shatner doing Chris Pine era Kurt because I've seen young Kirk through Pine now I can see the Kirk version I'm like oh yeah this has really come together well yeah actually and, and as we go into the, you know, the, the the last episode there are a couple parallels with some of the Abrams uh, uh, track um, mm. which is kind of interesting like literally getting to watch versions of sequences that uh, that you've seen with Pine uh, done with Shatner and uh, and you get to compare and contrast. One thing I will say, just to, just to agree heartily with with Paul, is that yeah, a Spock really does not look right in a golden tan tunic. <laughs> I just I just desperately the whole episode was just screaming at him like, put a blue shirt on. <laughs> Roll neck as well, which looks yeah, really weird. There is there's no Uhura and Scotty and um, and uh, and Sulu don't have names in this episode, but it is. A fully integrated crew racially, which is which is good. Get the feeling that Roddenberry's testing the waters and feeling a little bit more confident to do some of the things he perhaps couldn't have done in the pilot. Yeah, but Gary Mitchell character though, when they they do kind of set up like Kirk and him and sort of been you know. <laughs> I, was I was like, not Gary. Yeah, no! Gary. Like, like, they they do kind of like <laughs> my best friend. Paint some broad shades of like a backstory <laughs> between him and Kirk, which I thought was quite interesting because mm. uh, you know I know this episode. Very much like the the James R. Kirk tombstone, you know, era. Yeah. But I love that image of you know him sort of using the powers just to make his grave for him. You know, <laughs> have been contemplating the death of an old friend. He deserves a decent burial, at least. But that, that little really yeah, backstory really made the difference later on but with it, getting a plant those seeds that they know each other. It all helps in the, the build-up in this episode. Exactly. One yeah. of the things that they do very well with uh, Gary Mitchell, who is played, you know, noteworthingly no played by Gary Lockwood, who would uh, shortly after this go on to be in 2001 A Space Odyssey. He's the astronaut who gets sent flying off into space. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Which is really, really cool. But also, um, the thing I really like about that character, so first of all, I feel like they're making a, a course correction from the first episode, which was too cerebral, by making it incredibly emotionally high stakes. This is his friend. This is more focused. This is a personal story. So so I, I understand the reasoning there. But the other thing I really like about it is that Gary Lockwood was quite a, you know, he was a good actor. He was a well-known actor. He's an actor who, in another version of the universe, could have played Kirk. The thing I like about him is that he is another handsome sort of matinee idol lead who's who's clearly a seasoned actor. He he doesn't look like a like a he's he's no day player, 
and yeah. and he carries lots of great scenes because I feel like he has star power. And I like the idea that they set up a character who could just as easily have been a regular on the show and then turn him into a monster. I actually really enjoyed that. And and I think he rocks that performance. Yeah, it could have been like even like uh, if this had been a character that maybe this is a six episode in and they had had him in all the ones beforehand and it'd be a real kind of mid season like twist mm. to have him mm. like go this way and oh my god, he's not coming back. This is uh yeah. Yeah. Does, does he not come back? Because we never saw no, him he die, he just got buried under a rock. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's him die. Okay. Well, but like interestingly, yeah, interestingly um uh, uh I, w- I found myself thinking throughout the episode because because of how disappointed everybody was that Into Darkness rehashed the Khan storyline, part of me felt like, wow, wouldn't it have been amazing if Cumberbatch had played Gary Mitchell? If, mm. if, if they brought back a character who was really obscure from the first ever episode of the show with Kirk and actually made that be the villain. Oh, yeah. Because, I think, you know, he, a, 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 a human character with an emotional connection to Kirk g- gaining godlike powers, I would have watched that movie. That would have been a cool movie. Well, it's funny you should say that because... I was going to mention that I actually thought this episode had a lot of similarities with Space Seed um, because I watched yeah. Space Seed when we did the Wrath of Khan episode uh, before it to kind of set myself up. And watching this again, you know, I haven't seen that many original series episodes. And I thought, oh, this is a really similar story, actually. It's got the woman kind of who's portraying everyone who's already on the ship and falling in love with the. Uh, with the bad guy in it, and you know, it, it just seems to follow very similar story beats. Yeah, well, actually, that's a trope that happens more and more in the series, which is the trope of the weaker woman with weaker morals being seduced by a dominant godlike man. It happens with Khan. <laughs> it happens, it happens with an alien. Happens with an alien who thinks he's the Greek god Apollo. You know, the the, the, the women are always professional until the point a powerful man offers them like trinkets and fancy dresses and love, and then suddenly they just. They just forget that they. Uh, <laughs> she redeems deep. herself in the end, though. Yeah, she does after the mind is, fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Sacrifices herself. But you said you really liked this episode. I really liked Matt. it. Yeah, because the the cage really threw me. But I knew, you know, it was a bit of an anomaly. And then this one, you could have said to me, this isn't even the new pilot. This is just like a great standalone episode because I did think, you know, it starts with a bit of mystery and that builds really slowly and you get the backstory and then it just kind of, you know, the progression of Gary's condition and his powers. It's like Chronicle or something, you know, we're seeing somebody get these powers and slowly becoming more and more distant from, you know, his old human feelings and his old human life. And then it just ends with some great, some great classic action. You get to have a bit of Kirk, Kirk roll, got a shirt oh, rip yeah. in there. And uh, and some and some really um, meaningful deaths because the whole time I did think you know oh where's McCoy in this I thought this was back to original crew and then I said oh they, you know we got a different doctor and then she dies I was like oh I guess that's why McCoy's coming in <laughs> yeah no I um, also was going to mention I thought one of the reasons you might like it is because it almost struck me as a little bit Twilight Zoney yeah yeah no yeah, I did, in terms I did. of the there's an episode isn't there that they do a treehouse of horror on where there's a kid and he's got supreme power yeah, yeah. and they have to reminded be me of that yeah because right? I did think yeah there's the treehouse of horror episode where Bart has like but that is based on the Twilight Bart. Zone isn't it kinda yeah I don't know if I've seen that one but with I did think with Twilight Zone because this you know Star Trek came four or five years after Twilight Zone finished mm, mm. so the influence had to have been there and there's plenty of great space set episodes like there's ones where they kind of go into space on a rocket and they land on what they think is a planet but they've just crash landed back on Earth and they're actually in Texas somewhere you know and ones where they get caught by Martians and put in a zoo and stuff so there's lots of great mm. 
pure sci-fi episode Twilight Zone so I did think and it's still that era you know it's still the 60s so you get a lot of that kind of aesthetic and the with the same sets and performances but with added colour and a uh, bit more technology you know mm. um, Paul have you got anything you want to say about where No Man Has Gone Before um, that we mm. mentioned I, I, sorry I had to step out to take the chicken out of you <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, have we mentioned uh, the female character what's her name Oh, well, oh no, yes, no, yeah, no, portraying the uh, the crew. Portraying the crew. Doctor. Yeah, but, but I do like, do like the fact that Kirk appeals to her professionalism like, yes. and, her, and her skills as a psychiatrist, rather yeah. than it wasn't a case of, like, flash him your vagina <laughs> to distract him. <laughs> it was use yeah, your, do your skills. Do yeah. your skills, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, that, that's true. That's true. Great line, yeah. Is he goes very Shakespearean in that scene? You see an awful lot of Kirk, kind of like channeling a bit of the bard in the the rhythm, the or the a rhythm of the way he speaks. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I, I kind of feel that I should make uh, an apology in this episode to Mr. William Shatner because uh, <laughs> during one of our recent episodes, I think it was our ranking episode, where we ranked all the movies. I compared Chris Pine and William Shatner as actors and said, I prefer William Shatner's performance as Kirk, but I yeah. thought that Chris Pine was the better actor overall, which Paul valiantly defended uh, Shatner mm. and said that I was wrong. And since then, I reevaluated my opinion. And uh, watching these episodes, actually, especially the second one that we watched with Kirk, which we'll get on to. Um, really made me go. Oh, you know what was I thinking? He's absolutely great. And I also recently still watched, him as Kurt. But I also recently watched one of his Twilight Zone episodes. Oh, okay. uh, Nightmare at fifty thousand feet. Is that it? Uh, Twenty thousand feet. And he's brilliant in that. Uh, you know this really claustrophobic horror as he's going completely crazy. And yeah. I, I was like, you know, I don't feel I've given Shatner his dues. So, Mr. Shatner. I apologise and fall <laughs> on my sword for you, sir. Um, but, yeah, what I to mention about where No Man's Gone Before is this constantly changing music. We don't get to the actual main theme until the last cut of episode because there's this weird Egyptian-like version of the music in the end credit. Well, but, uh, Netflix like to see his fit try and queue up the next one for me so I, you know, I don't really get to, get to watch the no, you, you, you don't want to hear this. Yeah. Also, just the worthy of note uh, the the version of the show on netflix with the exception of i believe the cage pilot um is the remastered version where they have uh, slightly cg'd versions of the ship shots and the uh, space shots. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh yes I, I said i put down like yeah. the space stuff looks amazing it looks like maybe yeah. great yeah. 90s tv not great 60s. I, I was so glad you mentioned this because i literally wrote down have they spruced this yes, up because they did yeah but uh, i mean it's yeah. done about 2000 and like or but it like looks that. fucking great. Yeah. Well, looks, I don't know. It looks it looks pretty good. I mean, mm. I mean, I if I had the choice, I'd probably watch the '60s version. But because Netflix get is giving you option, yes. And the fact is, like like Dave, we both have jobs, and I need to be able to watch it on the move. Like yeah. you, know, you know, literally every chance I get, I'm watching Star Trek. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, having it on my phone or whatever is really good. But and I'm starting to take the new version. Yeah, I, I've got to say, I personally think those ship shots. I mean, it's it's kind of weird because. They don't seem to have updated any anything else. It's literally just occasionally those <laughs> ship shots, and they look. It's a, which is why it made me question. Like, oh, is it? Have they actually done anything with this, or they, is it just yeah. so good HD that it looks amazing? But um, yeah, th- those shots. I kind of think it works 
that it's clearly slightly earlier CG because that yeah. way it still convinces you. It doesn't seem completely mm. out of place. You yeah. just think that you looks it, somehow it? amazing. It's not like Discovery CG or yes. something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it is also keeping it like the same length of shot like as it would have been originally. Right. So it is not kind of like expanding it out and just going, oh, look, we can do. It is just we are the exact intention of the original shot. You know, yeah, I think it's phenomenal. They did show a lot of fidelity to the original effects, which I appreciated. I mean, uh, it was actually funny because I read that for the cage, uh, they had uh, the guy who was in charge of doing the model shots, you know, back when model shots were incredibly difficult, was working day and night and day and night. And they kept asking him, have you got the shots? Have you got the shots? To the point that he had a nervous breakdown. (laughs) And and literally, when I was watching... When I was watching the remastered version, I was like, I don't know, they look okay to me. Nervous <laughs> <laughs> breakdown for nothing. Also, he's like now probably sh- shivering in a chair somewhere and seeing his work replaced anyway. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's like pipe rolling around as if he's on fire, like in the cage. Um, so we're going to move on to Dave's episode pick uh, basically the idea that we're going to do with these episodes is our guest will pick an episode for us to watch it doesn't necessarily have to be their favourite episode it doesn't necessarily have to be what's considered one of the best episodes literally just an episode that they think well represents the spirit and ethos of the show and what the show is capable of and hopefully convince us um, as non-trackies to watch the rest of the series uh, properly um, so, Dave, why don't you tell us which episode you picked for us to watch? Okay, so so this episode, uh, as Liam knows, because I've been fran- you know frantically messaging him for the last week or two, I really wrestled with which episode uh, I was going to suggest because there are so many classic episodes of the original series, like you know objectively classic pieces of sci-fi television, like City on the Edge of Forever, um, the Corbinite Maneuver Arena. Um, or uh, one of, the one that almost became my choice, which was uh, a taste of Armageddon. Uh, but so so I ended up watching all of the episodes in preparation for this because I thought I I, I kind of don't want to pick one that's just obvious, like that, that everyone already knows is classic. I'm sure those have been talked about and dissected to death. And at the same time, maybe if I watch this show, maybe there'll be like an outlier that that will just grab me, and and I'll I'll be glad that I. That I rewatched the whole thing, and that's what happened because uh, the episode I'm recommending to to to, to talk about is called um, "This Side of Paradise." And even when I told Liam that this was the episode I wanted to pick, I was still questioning myself. I thought I should have my head examined because, <laughs> on the face of it, it doesn't seem like the ingredients for a classic episode of Star Trek. I mean, it falls into the subcategory uh, of a Trouble in Paradise episode, which is actually my least favorite kind of uh, Roddenberry trope, which is like a seemingly perfect Eden-esque like planet or community that's hiding some kind of sinister secret. Because uh, they, they kind of repeat a bunch of those sort of same kind of stories in other episodes. And so he clearly has like an endless preoccupation with sort of paradise episodes and pleasure planet fantasies. Um, and and then also on on the face of it, it has incredibly low production values in the episode, even compared to other Star Trek episodes. You know, there's no space battles. There's I don't even believe a phaser's fired in the episode. You know, uh, they clearly just shot it in a California state park with very few, you know, sci-fi costumes or trappings. It's got laughably fake-looking alien flowers that are <laughs> you know, the of the story. 
Um, and so even by the show standards, uh, you know, it's fairly flimsy. And so save for one or two, you know, minor fisticuffs, this is entirely a character piece episode. And, uh, you know, despite myself, I just, as I watched it, it really got me. And even though there were all these other episodes I could, I could have chosen and I really seriously gravitated towards a couple of the others, when I asked myself which episode would I want to talk to you guys about, it's, it, this one just kept coming back to me. I just love it. Mate. Uh, do, should we do a brief synopsis of this one? Yeah, no, go, go right ahead, Paul. So, so, uh, so yeah, uh, this side of Paradise, it's, um, the Enterprise comes across a planet uh, where there was a um, meant to be a colony established four years previous. Upon arriving at the planet, they've realised that the radiation would mean that everybody who was there would have been dead after a week. Um, so they beam down, and they know that they can last maybe a week with the radiation to see what potentially what had happened. On arrival on the planet, which is green and lush, uh, it turns out that they actually have survived the 150 colonists and that they've been not only that they've been able to kind of grow some food there they seem to be perfectly happy however there doesn't be no animal life whatsoever a bit of a mystery seeing as they should have been dead three years previous that's the that's the pr- crux of the episode um, but what, it, what where it goes with it is that um, the um, colonists have been protected from the radiation by the effects of a spore that is released by a plant and one of the side effects of also protecting them is that they really lose their sort of... Um, inhibitions? It, it, not really inhibitions, but like their need to kind of uh, sort they of struggle. They become hippies. They become hippies, essentially. <laughs> it's the hippie connection to each other. They feel like they belong to a community. Mm. That it becomes them. a commune, doesn't it? More than a, yeah. a settlement. Because they only grow enough food to survive. They don't seem to kind of overproduce. They don't, you know, they're not intended on building anything. They're just sort of happy to exist and just live in the moment. Yeah. So, paradise, essentially. Yeah, no, completely. Um, now, I've got to say, I don't really know what you were worrying about, Dave. I thought this episode was great. I really, really liked um, this episode. It's definitely my favourite of the three um, yeah. that we watched, by far. Um, I mean, number one, it's kind of, you know, just nice to see all of the classic uh, tropes bar Chekhov. Uh, be in there you know you've got all the characters you've kind of got the trio of Spock, McCoy and Kirk established in that you have some great uh, stuff where later on where um, Kirk actually turns around to McCoy and says you said you'd like him if he mellowed when uh, Spock gets affected and you know McCoy really shows that he is concerned for Spock so he does love him really you know and and there's loads of great stuff with Kirk and Spock's relationship and stuff so all these kind of things are are there Um, but also I just think it's a really good mystery uh, for the first half and then goes yeah. some really dramatic almost Shakespearean places it's a great later. score for it it feels very B-movie seven, uh, 50s kind of mm. like it seems like I don't know if it's a pheromone that's used but it just has this spooky mm. quality to like how I mean the fact they can't afford extras also means it's very sparsely populated <laughs> and that also is like where is everybody it's really weird it's like we can't afford them but it's okay yeah the shot of members of the crew lining up to go down to the planet is probably the most popular shot in the whole of Star Trek. That's <laughs> everybody. Yeah, but, but, but you're right. It's one of those episodes where um, where seemingly not much happens, but it's like a slow burn towards what I think is some of the most powerful, I could, definitely one of the greatest guest acting performances I've seen in the entire show in uh, Jill Island's character, Lila. I think, you know, like I'll, I'll talk about it when we get to it because it's just, but, but I started watching it thinking it was going to be a three-star episode. And pretty much 
you know, right away like the moment you start realizing what's happening it just it, it becomes a four star and then by the time kirk is on his own on the ship it's it's a five star for me mm. you know it's, it's such a powerful episode and it's also great because you know we talked about how spock wasn't defined in the cage and how like they sort of they, they changed him a little bit for the, the next pilot this episode is 100 percent going you know full spark you know showing us what you know what makes him such a compelling and tragic and beautiful character and lennon you know nimoy just knocks it out of the park in my opinion by letting him be so different once he's affected so you yes. see how he is in that sense so when he's classic spock you really feel it yeah 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 and you know like there's that there's it's it's, there are all these beautiful moments of like subtlety between him and jill island because just just for some context jill island plays leela who is a doctor who who had a thing with spock back in the day and and he could never have uh uh loved her back then because of his logic and his his values would never have allowed her like she says that line mr spock's feelings were never expressed to me and and so when he gets uh under the influence of the spores he all of the feelings that were there but were like mm. bent or, 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 or dormant come back and the most heartbreaking line you know this comes from a scene where there's a really beautiful piece of um of physical acting where she is going to show him something and she raises her hand and then he puts his hands behind his back like it's really really nice little subtle uh moments but then it goes from that moment where he finally falls in love with her because of you know suddenly becoming connected to everyone in the commune where he says he says i love you and then he says i can love you i can love you which is just a beautiful line because it, it it's not about someone being given a love potion and then being like manipulated into being in love with someone they're not in love with like like uh, in a standard episode mm. it's he has feelings for this person and she did love express he it. did love her and now he can and there's something really quite beautiful about it. absolutely I, I was going to say um listening to on radio 4 recently um you know where we're, we're going in terms of automation and robots taking our jobs and at a certain point vast sectors of the economy you know will be automated and people will be out of jobs and what how do we what do people do when they've got nothing to do or we have to give the universal income so they actually you know they get enough food they can just exist they can you know, indulge any kind of whim that they want um, I assume everybody's going to start reading books um, <laughs> but, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I just think like Ronald <laughs> would not be approving of the universal income because in this episode he clearly states that you know what if you basically have all the time in the world it's shit like, <laughs> <laughs> like we need to change it we need to fight to, get, to keep it you know we need something to struggle for it reminds me of the quote by John F. Kennedy. It's like uh, about going to the moon. He says, well, we do this not because it is easy, but because it is hard. <laughs> hard. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing, actually, because the philosophy of this episode, um, as Paul says, is, is kind of like, oh, no, you know, you can't just be lying about being goddamn hippies. Got to kind of, you know, yeah. struggle and strive. But... That's usually an ethos uh, I'm a little bit um, wary of. But in here, it completely works because it's not real. And that's the problem. That's the problem that Kirk has with it. It's the fact that he, he doesn't have an issue with people relaxing and having a fun time. You know, it's that this isn't real. It's a fantasy. And if he allows uh, the human races, you know, they are to stagnate and stuff like that, and they'll, they'll lose themselves. So they, he's got to get them back, um, not because he wants to put them to work, but just because it's it's not it's fake. And that's what I really love about that. 
Well, it flies right in the face of everything Kirk is, which is what makes it so powerful, which is that Kirk is the exact opposite of that. And Kirk is not is not immune to having a good time. Like, there was a ep- couple episodes earlier where, where they end up going to what turns out to be like a Westworld-style pleasure planet, and it just ends with them realizing, oh, let's just stay here for shore leave. And then, you know, it, it's just uh, insinuated that they just spent, like, a month just shagging everything. <laughs> and, and Spock, Spock even in that episode, is like, doesn't see why they're laughing, and they're all like, like I... I I, I I read books and did other things, and they and you know it just ends with them all feeling like hey, it's funny because Spock doesn't fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, as he said earlier this episode, emotions are alien to me. I'm a scientist. <laughs> it's oh, one of the reasons why I love the episode because um, I mean one of the big tropes, and it happens in in the cage as well, which is the it's a very annoying '60s trope that whenever a beautiful woman walks into a room, all the men are just robbed of speech, and then you know the music comes in and it pans in on Kirk's face. And it's something so refreshing about the fact that in this episode, not only is uh, Jill Island uh, not really very sexualized in the story at all, she's lit beautifully, you know, with a lot of like gold sort of wreath of lightning, uh, of of lighting around her hair and everything. But uh, but she's she's basically uh, Spock's love interest. And so I felt a genuine sense of, you know, being refreshed when the woman comes into the room, the music comes in and then it pans in on Spock and I'm like you know what I could give a shit about any you know story about Kirk's last love because Kirk you know that's just part of his character he just goes through women whereas a story about Spock falling in love that is something I want to see you know well that's exactly it isn't it it's the idea of Spock having an old flame is Mm. intriguing because you're kind of like wait a minute Spock doesn't have romances so how has he got this woman in his past who he's got an emotional connection with and then you realise that oh it was a it was a one-sided unrequited uh, thing on her part but he obviously felt something as well but couldn't quite allow himself to kind of feel those deep feelings there's clearly something there even at the end um he kind of says at the end of the episode that he was happy usually spock's sort of cold clinical devotion to logic is is mined for humor by kirk and bones you know usually usually it's the butt of the jokes at the end of episodes you know and and it's just lovely to see it being mined for genuine emotional complexity in the set like i feel like it's they're, they're making the best use out of that premise you know, and that's what good TV is. And good TV also ends with a fist fight because yeah. that's how we resolve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's and great massive, to uh, see Spock and Kirk throw down, isn't it? And having well, a think, big insult flinging. Well, fight, that was Dave good. alluded to earlier, like how we saw the beginnings of some of the things that appeared in JG verse. Mm. That at the time, I remember uh, people were saying, "Well, that's very out of character," and clearly hadn't seen the show to mm. see that like Kirk and Spock would be at each other's throats, but. Again, he uses insults to provoke an emotional response. Yeah, yeah, for the good of the story. It's similar to the cage as well, in that there's these two episodes where the idea of negative emotions and hatred, you know, is often you know such a bad thing and is often portrayed as the key to like winning the day. You know, yeah. Here, here it's like we'll break through it by just insulting the hell out of you and getting getting you mad and riled up. And in the cage, it was you know. Hate, hate-filled, hate, hate-filled uh, thinking is the thing that breaks through the Teleka 
Well, it, it's feeling stuff. emotion, isn't it? It's yeah. the suppressing these kind of, you know, suppressing that side of yourself because anger is natural and everything. And if you, you know, if you right to feel anger at the time, then you should, you should express that. And yeah. actually, to suppress it is, is not the right thing to do. So, the fact that they have to—that's the key to unlocking this and breaking the spell—is really interesting. I think Kirk's insults to Spock oh. are fucking hilarious. Of course, you don't understand. You don't have the brains to understand. All you have is printed circuits. Captain, if you'll excuse me. What can you expect from a simpering, devil-eared freak whose father was a computer and his mother an encyclopedia? My mother was a teacher my father an ambassador your father was a computer like his son an ambassador from a planet of traitors why is calling you a computer saw. such an insult how <laughs> <laughs> you wired Sorry, you better watch that shit <laughs> <laughs> I wish Pine had done that in the new version when he's trying to get him to fight rather than you go for PC. his mum <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to write um, a lot of these down because the the, the Spock roast is just <laughs> so delicious. Like where he's talking about, like calls him a carcass full of memory banks who should be squatting on a mushroom instead of passing up on the pan. Ooh, what then, burn. Like, I love the fact that he says you belong in a circus, Spock, not a starship. And then Spock turns away from him, and then you just hear off screen his final line that. Great Spock's, you know, co- you know, you know, complacency is right next to the dog-faced boy, <laughs> and I was like, oh no, you didn't call him a dog-faced boy. That's that's like the last straw. That's what makes Spock go nuts. Well, yeah, it's, he has to turn like basically racist towards Vulcans to really snap him to make him go like, how dare you? Kind of thing. Like, you know, he's obviously that's not what Kirk actually thinks at all. He's not like that. Uh, he doesn't allow any bigotry on his bridge after all. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he has to push it into that realm to get him. But also, as as Dave will know from his rewatch, it's also the second time in 20 episodes where he's had to uh, use, like, um, sort of pointy-eared hobgoblin as 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 an insult. (laughs) But in service of the plot, like, isn't it? Because in the episode where they're um, underground and Kirk is replaced by a a replicant of Kirk... Mm. But in the in the replication process, he just yeah. says something racist about Vulcans, oh, and that gets implied into the new one. And can then Spock realizes it's not Kirk because he's, yeah. he like uh, says something. He'd never be a racist to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's really racism. interesting. So though. racism gets you out of a lot of uh, jams. <laughs> Spock, <laughs> Spock has had McCoy say so many, you know, insulting things yeah, to him that's about. True, yeah. Vul- He'll he'll tolerate sort of passive racism from from McCoy because he knows McCoy is his heart's in the right place and he kind of like endures it with complete grace. Mm. It's the fact that it's Jim and then the fact that like, I mean, I love the fact that at the end of that fight when Spock comes back, you know, there's like a really beautiful moment where where Spock says, you did that deliberately and Kirk says, believe me, Mr. Spock, it was painful for me too in more ways than one, you know? And, and you know, the idea that he, you know, he, he endured being, you know, uh, attacked by Sork, but also it hurt him personally to have to say that to his friend. And then Spock offers to court martial himself for striking a fellow officer. So it's like both of their characters are well, right you know, it's pretty great. After the sort of silence of Kirk's loneliness throughout this part of the story, it's so great to see them suddenly back together again. Yeah, I mean, I, I love 
all that, all the stuff with Kirk. Because he's basically marooned, because he turns around and he says that, yeah. he's kind of just speaking into his log and just going, yeah. well, you need more than one person to run the ship, can't just put it on autopilot or anything. So I'm kind of screwed, I'm kind of marooned here. I, I think... I think Paul is actually killing a chicken in the kitchen <laughs> right now. Yeah, so you can hear so so uh, yeah. about. There was so there, were, there were tons of moments in this that made me laugh because isn't there a bit where Kirk goes up to a crew member and goes like, "This is mutiny," and the guy's like, "Yes, this <laughs> is." <laughs> well, because that's what's really scary, isn't it? Because you don't get to see the whole crew get turned. It's just kind of like yeah, one it's or just two, spread around and then so suddenly quickly. all of them, it, everyone apart from they're, Kirk, they're doing the thing from Futurama with the brain slugs, so they're just bringing each other the plants like. Ooh, have a sniff of this <laughs> yeah well yeah because they've got the spunking flower haven't they <laughs> that's pointless <laughs> and not only does it spunk but when the flower it releases itself you always hear like a saxophone go <laughs> it's funny when you mentioned that Jill Island was a notable guest star in this episode I actually thought you were going to mention Frank Overton uh, who plays the leader of the colony uh, he is great. Uh, yeah, I thought he was great. He actually died the same year this episode was broadcast. Really? Yeah, it was one of his last roles. It was, what? and uh, he died that same year, which is crazy. I mean, you know, he, he seemed fit as a fiddle on this. Um, yeah. He was and he, ironic for an episode where he is on a planet where he can never die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was most famous for being the sheriff in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, but I think he's great in this episode. He's a really yeah. quietly intimidating presence in it like when he turns up there's just something even though he's been all chilled and stuff you kind of feel like there's a danger about this guy lurking on the surface he seems sinister actually the characters trying to like uh, infect them in fact I mean you know they just sort of let it happen don't they they don't really kind of like uh, you know go out all out to try and convert the stars yeah yeah Yeah, completely about this episode is that there are really no villains I mean no one dies in this episode um, uh, they're stranded the whole obviously forever. But Leela only wants to be with Spark, um, and and the the people down on the planet just want everyone to belong, and and they take down like the most formidable ship in the universe completely non-violently, mm-hmm. and it's like a, it's just a peaceful coup. And you're right about that guy's performance because he he basically the thing that's creepy about him is is how completely congenial he is. And and uh, I personally I love the line that he rocks at the end where he, when he finally comes out of his uh, his his uh, trance and and he he just rocks the line where he says we do nothing here. It's it's such a great moment where you just know he's changed and it's it's a really beautiful piece of yeah well, um, achieved nothing like, yeah. yeah yeah. One thing I want to do is is jump onto that thing you were saying about Kirk being marooned the bit where where he's on his own. I, I completely agree with you about the way that Kirk, the way Shatner plays that part of of Kirk. Because the, one of the things I love about this episode is how refreshing it treats characters. So with Kirk, what's amazing about it is it's kind of like his, it's kind of like his peaceful Kobayashi Maru. You know what I mean? Like he, we strip away all the things that uh, that are like his strength, like his swagger, you know, his smugness, like his he, he has nothing to fight. He has nothing to seduce or destroy. He has nothing to strategize against. All of his weapons are useless and and the crew just abandon him. And so Shatner, like you are right. I've really grown to appreciate Shatner as an actor through watching the series, like even in scenes where he's not the one speaking, 
you can kind of see the wheels turning in his head. You know, he's 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 very very. Um, He's clearly a cerebral captain, you know, in a way that Pike wasn't. Just you, you could tell that he's thinking about things. And that scene where he's on the bridge and he's alone and he does this, what is essentially just like a long monologue mm. and it's like, you know, maybe two long takes. It's, it's like his lowest moment. And, mm. and, and it's because he's lost his, his biggest weapon, which is, you know, his crew. And, and he has to come to terms with his own limitations and realize that he's nothing without his crew, but also that he's nothing without Spock. And that's one of the things that I love about that episode. Like, you know, Kirk's moment of, of darkness in the most unexpected way, you know, the most unexpected way a character like him could be undone, you know, is, is, is marvelous. And then um, the other thing I wanted to talk about. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say his brilliant performance, though, is slightly undercut by him getting hit in the face by a spunking plant again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like after all that brilliant But about, about his performance there, one thing I did want to say was... Um, I do love the way, even though he gets infected, he kind of still overcomes it. Like, once he looks yeah, at his I medals, wondered, he's like, he I just... can't betray the medals. <laughs> <laughs> and he manages to come back. But yeah, I did it? think, was he just immune or was he just fighting it more than the others? I think he was He was fighting okay. it. Because he does, he does go yeah, kind he does of get it, for a minute. It? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. There was the whole thing about when he was doing Trek 5 that he wanted to be the only one like <laughs> uh, who didn't get turned by Cyborg. But like it was Leonard and Nimoy and DeForest K said, no, 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 we have to not turn with you. It has to be the three of us. Mm. and it's amazing like he didn't get his way when he was directing but he managed to get like to be the one person standing he should have said remember this episode yeah it's Shatner's ego isn't it all the way oh god Dave um yeah the other thing that like okay so the reason why I knew because like you mentioned the flower you know undercutting that incredibly beautiful bit of performance so like you know obviously there are elements of this episode that if you watch from the perspective of being a non-fan you would consider twee and sort of laughable you know um but the thing that uh, i love about this episode is that at the heart of it it builds towards a scene that i think could stand against any modern scene which is the scene where spock calls layla up to the enterprise he beams her up and essentially that moment where she comes and hugs him and then realizes that he's no longer part of the community and and it's the most heartbreaking thing like the he has to break her heart for the second time literally he has to like he has to screw her up again to save her life he has to he has to like it's not even just as painful as like i had unrequited love and i i, I told this guy i loved him and uh, and he couldn't love me but the idea that then he came back to her and she got him and then she had to have it happen twice. And then not only that, but it, it, it also destroys the spores inside her. And so she, she loses everything. Like that's like an, like, first of all, it's super dark to me, you know, on a personal level. And to, you know, I think her performance is so, cause like when you watch a show like Star Trek, you do run the risk of watching a lot of actors doing kind of like, antiquated styles of acting you know like 1960s styles of acting they talk like you go to so many planets like alien planets where there are godlike beings who all speak like this it's always a deep rumbling voice that says you will not need those primitive weapons <laughs> you know like it's very, very there's a certain style and 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 the women in the show often tend to sort of speak in a very sort of like oh kind of like like secretarial sort of like you know bimboish kind of way and i think jill island's performance in that scene you know 
could be in in a modern show um like she she literally you know when you consider the constraints of television and how few takes they probably had like she rocks a tear she like it's just a stunning moment and and it 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 reminds me almost of that moment in the simpsons where lisa breaks ralph's heart and bart's freeze framing through you can literally see the moment where his heart splits in half like you watch you watch that thing and, and and she sort of has to turn away from him and it's so fucking guttural and and and, and emotional and then also on the same side of that uh, you know uh nimoy Nimoy uh, has to do something even more complicated, which is that he has to be back inside Spock's sort of like impregnable, uh, you know, fortifications. But he has to still gently and sort of lovingly let her down. And his lines about how, you know, he's in a a self-imposed sort of purgatory, you know, and that he has a duty of care to the man on the bridge. You know, he's essentially choosing, you know, Kirk over her. It's such a beautifully modulated piece of acting from from Nimoy and and you know it ends on like a very strange line where where she says you never told me if you had another name Mr. Spark and then he sort of wipes away a tear and says you couldn't pronounce it it's a very odd line I don't know why it's really in the scene it kind of feels like it comes out of nothing but just because of the strength of their performances there's something kind of like really strangely lovely about it and so yeah that, that was the scene that made me feel like fuck okay this is going to have to be the episode that I that I talk to you guys about because I just emphasize emphasizes his alienness again right at the end doesn't it like puts a little button on it with his name thing well and it all resonates so much more anyway because of that thing where it's not just a one episode thing they've got actual history um stuff which is really really nice um it's not just Gary Mitchell (laughs) no 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 one thing yeah fucking Gary Mitchell <laughs> one thing I also wanted to mention was I love how McCoy goes full Texan once he like <laughs> loses it um, like yeah oh, that sorry. seems really <laughs> random that his accent becomes much more pronounced once he gets all chilled out like he's almost been putting on a show like he doesn't he doesn't want people to know that he's from like the deep south or whatever. for me in general it was so weird seeing young McCoy because <laughs> he yeah. does look a lot younger than the movies and I love it at the end where everyone starts to fight all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, they're just and, like, uh, and McCoy, it, McCoy is basically turning around to the. Uh, he the, someone the, with one hand. The leader he? of the comedy going, Do you like hospital food, pal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, goes, I'm a doctor, how, I know how to put someone see, fucking hospital yeah, yeah, you see how quickly. Do you want to see how fast I can put you in the hospital? <laughs> Such a good line. But yeah, um. I think we see the, the the birth of country bumpkin McCoy, <laughs> and 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 my favorite line of his, by the way, with that accent, with that Georgia accent, is uh, it just gets me every time. I can't stop laughing. Is when he, he it's it's one word. It's when he he gets on the communicator and he goes, and a prize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so high. So um, Paul, I, Paul, I believe, is just serving up some uh, dinner for us. But I kind of think, to be honest. He's already been convinced by Star Trek, the original series already, because, you know, Paul has kind of done the transformation into full Trekkie while we've been doing this podcast. And now he's almost finished season one of his own uh, proper watch of Star Trek, the original series. So I think he's sold. Uh, So really, it's Matt and I uh, that needed to be convinced here. And I've got to say... Based on the cage and where no man has gone before, they were very, very interesting to watch as kind of curios and kind of, you know, a piece of Star Trek history. But it wasn't until I watched 
the episode that you suggested, uh, David, this side of paradise, that I actually became convinced that I needed to see more of this earlier iteration. I actually went, oh, I really want to see more episodes of this now. If they've got stories as interesting as kind of like actually seemingly epic as this because it does feel like even though it's quite small scale it feels like an epic story yeah. and, and of, modern feeling like Dave says yes yeah because there's so such <clears throat> a big character art for Kirk and Spock over this one episode uh, mm. that yeah I, I, I'm in I, I want to see more of the original series I mean it's one of those things where you know with the original series um, there isn't kind of story arcs as it were um so I'm not sure if I'll watch the entire series, but certainly um, there's going to be a lot of individual episodes I'm going to watch. And to be honest, I might. I think I'll probably just start from the beginning and just start watching through, and mm. you know, see see where I go because I, I really, really love this episode. What about you, Matt? Uh, yeah, I'm the same. I think I think these last two, you know, where where No Man's Gone Before and this one have really kind of shown the strength of the single episode format, which which you say you don't get a lot of these days. Yeah, exactly. In this, this new age of TV, it's all serialized mm. and it's fantastic. But there is something to be said about great standalone episodes where you char- you know your characters are known entities and you can play around and do with it what you will. Um, and I think something about the original series speaks to me more than the other ones at this stage. You know, I haven't watched the other ones yet. Uh, we'll get to them. But I think I am more likely to uh, check out new ep- uh, more episodes of this one. Whether it's some of the classics first, maybe I won't. But I won't go in order. But as you say, like they're standalones, it's easy to jump around. And uh, I think I will. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll give more of our thoughts uh, to these uh, episodes as we go on um, in further podcasts. Am I at the my my two two? T- no, <laughs> <laughs> we've, already, we've already told the audience that you're already fucking old. You're almost through season one. I'm sorry, I'm making gravy right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm making gravy, so I'm brief. But basically, Paul's watched as much of the show as I have. It sounds I'm one third of the way there, and I gotta say, this is I'll just put it in perspective, like how much I'm enjoying it. Is that I would check. Like uh, I was like, wow, this episode's great. It's a Stone Cold classic. That must be like one of the the, the, the twelve that are really good that they alluded to in Futurama. It's like that's fucking great. <laughs> and I check like uh, AV Club for their thing. It's like C minus, <laughs> an average episode of Star Trek. It's like, well, if these are the average ones, fucking amazing. <laughs> amazing. Um, so unfortunately, uh, Paul is busy himself making our dinner, um, and he's kind of get back in that kitchen, <laughs> press the button, <laughs> and he's. Standing by the door like Alfred in Batman Forever. <laughs> uh, perhaps the dogs are hungry. No. Uh, <laughs> From so, this moment on, we shall we shall henceforth know him as Yeoman Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> so we better wrap this episode up. But it's been great to have you back on, Dave. We've been wanting to do this um, for a long time. Um, ever since, obviously, you helped us get uh, Robert Salin onto the show uh, not too long ago which was really really great and we're very very thankful for um, but yeah I mean I think we're, we're done with this one aren't we uh, it makes me so happy to know that that uh, that uh that you love that episode um, as much as I did, and it's it's always a pleasure to come on this po- uh, podcast. I'm such a fan of you guys uh, as 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 friends, but also completely separately. Just as you know, really, I I dig this show, man. I think it's awesome. Thank you, thank you, mate. That's really Means really good Thanks. to hear. And um, yeah, what we're hoping is that next time you're on your show, you're actually sitting back here around the table. 
actually physically present you can beam in from Austin and uh, yeah. yeah hopefully have some chicken yeah, yeah, yeah and it's, it, like, it's a shame you can't I've set the table for it's like Tiny Tim <laughs> I know I, I, I currently have no food in my house so you guys are just torturing me now <laughs> yeah, if you'd actually been here we could have all junk mint tulips together mint, especially, mint, mint tulips <laughs> especially made by Dr McCoy oh that would have been great right mate well uh, it's great to uh, speak to you again and, and we'll uh, go wrap this one up it's great to hear how great you're doing as well um, yeah I, sounds amazing yeah man. no it's, it, we we look forward to hearing more I mean we've got to get you on again to hear more updates yeah once you get past those it's pesky NDAs like uh, <laughs> yeah of course I mean uh, hopefully the next time I'll be able to tell you a little bit more about what I'm doing but I also must extend my congratulations to you for your interview with Richard Donner which I assume will be coming out before before this episode oh, we'll yes yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll be out by the time this episode episode goes out so thank you very much that mate and we'll speak to you again soon next time we'll be back looking at star trek the animated series uh, but until then goodbye <laughs> sir <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll speak to you soon mate uh, have a great night at your mexico trilogy that sounds yeah. fucking awesome oh yeah man yeah screening of uh, uh, el mariachi desperado and once upon a time in mexico uh, followed by Robert's going to do a Q&A and then his band's going to perform so we saw that that was one of the first films we saw uh, Once Upon in Mexico when we met like me and Liam actually was no it? no well, not we, me we saw it you, okay, you I mean, you saw it into your memory like uh, no but yeah you guys yeah, 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 oh, no, we, we would have just known you but you but I was not know. invited anyway no. But it was, it was the last ever VHS tape on sale in Sainsbury's when I was working there before the death of VHS. So <laughs> it's got pride of flights. It's like one of the first of digital and the last of an VHS. Yeah, 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 definitely. Right, mate, we've got to go. But it's great to have you on and uh, have a great day, yeah? Same to you guys, mate. It's been a pleasure. See you later, mate. Have gone. Night, mate. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight and wish to support us, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at SpotlightPod. You can also get in touch and drop us a message directly by emailing spotlightpod at gmail.com.